0: You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth.
1: Good afternoon. I am Bishop C.L. Mitchell here with Reverend John Cor, and uh, Terry Dawson, shepherdess and servant leader in Veritas Bible Church. And we are delighted once again to be with you this week in order to continue our discussion on the seven last saints of Christ on the cross. We would particularly like to thank uh, Jacob Barker, who is the president of KXEG The Trumpet, and the staff members who have been so kind to us on last week and continue to do so this week. What's more, we would like to thank our listening audience. And as we are engaged in discussion, Uh, We would like to mention and suggest uh, that uh, if you have any questions, you can call or text 602-422-6490. That, again, is 602 6490 and someone would be most delighted to take your call, and they will enter your question, and uh, at the end of the broadcast, uh, approximately 15 minutes or so, we will entertain conversation concerning that. Well, we're going to begin uh, today with the fourth statement of Jesus on the cross, that can be found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, and I will begin reading at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, uh, my statement, that is 12, uh, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Again, my clarification, that is 3 p.m. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabakni, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
0: John, would you like to begin our discussion for today? Yeah, I mean, what a um what what a statement that uh, it's really at this point where the the entire purpose for Christ to be on the cross is beginning, and that is Christ, at this point, our understanding is that he is now beginning to bear the sins of the world, that the sins of the world are being laid on Christ himself, and there's a point where Christ is experiencing a break, you could say, in the fellowship and intimacy that he had with the Father for all of eternity past. I mean, this is, this is a very, very profound statement. In fact, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, of course, is quoting from Psalm 22, which depicts the agony of the events of the crucifixion. And so in one sense, we are uh, to note that, but in another sense, um, it's, a, it's a place that Christ goes in our stead, he goes in our place, to that place of being forsaken by God because of sin. And if we understood the, the relevance of that or the, the, the deep implications of that, here Jesus Christ is being fully man, fully God. He is the son of God. And from all eternity past, he has experienced unbroken fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, uh, to the point where even uh, John says that the word that means Christ was with God, and the word with there means he was in close fellowship with God. Now there's a point where that's broken, and though it only lasts for a short period of time, it's going to last for three hours on the cross, it is enough it is the, the agony that Christ did not want to look forward to. When he is in the garden and bleeding drops of blood, the distress that's on him is because of this moment. This is the moment where the wrath of God is being poured out on, 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 on Christ. And it is really the point where he is truly bearing our burden and he is truly taking on the sins of the world. And it is something only he himself was able to go through and those who um, who put their faith in Christ will never, ever have to say those words. Mm. There may be times when, when we as believers feel distant from God or feel alone, but God has never abandoned us. And Christ was experiencing that um, in time so that we would not have to experience that in eternity. So it's very significant. I know we're not going to have a whole lot of time to discuss and we can Talk about just the statement for weeks on end, but uh, this is a very, very critical time, and uh, you know it's just very significant on on um, right scripture.
1: Um, I wholeheartedly agree with you, John. I want to make a few textual observations. Now you're uh, getting technical with me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make a few textual observations. First of all, uh, what I read from was the uh, New American Standard Bible which is most likely drawing from the Hebrew right. uh, language. Uh, w- the language that Jesus would have said um, uh, would have been Eloi, Eloi, uh, lama shabak na'ni, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So if individuals see a difference in spelling uh, in their text, it is because it is the difference betwixt maybe a derivation from the Hebrew versus a derivation from the Aramaic text. Right. Mark Mark does the Aramaic <coughs> (coughs) (laughs) Absolutely. What's more, uh, when you're looking at this text, the reason why I proceeded to read verse number 45 is because um, there are those who would um, uh, surmise... in a metaphorical sense that uh, uh, Jesus being on the cross and the darkness coming, if you will, was because two suns could not shine at the same time. Well, this is uh, not only textually uh, fallacious, it's also not consistent with the very life of Christ because the the entire life of Christ was a moral shining, if you will, uh, that is picked up by John uh, later on in his epistolary writing. But as you are looking at this, this darkness seems to depict an illusion that is Descripted both in uh, the book of Exodus, chapter number 10, and Descripted in the book of Amos, chapter number 8. And the indication is that this darkness is an indication or a sign of judgment. Uh, It's interesting because a similar darkness that is parallelistic to this Darkness, I think, uh, uh, at a different time, albeit, uh, is said in the book of Exodus To be a darkness that could be felt.
0: Right. And that's with the the first Passover. Yes. That's with with the Exodus and the first Passover. Of course, Christ now is, he is the fulfillment of that. He is the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Obviously, appealing to the uh, to the lamb of, uh, to the scapegoat, but as the Passover Lamb, he is now what was a picture in Exodus and the picture of God redeeming His people, and of course, the idea of darkness being a judgment. Now that's when that's why you can see. Now this is really where God's judgment is going on Christ, which is very, very interesting because he, he Scripture says he who knew no sin mm-hmm. became sin for us. I mean that's that is um, I don't think we really understand that. A lot right. of times as Christians we think Christ died on the cross for us. That's great, you know, but there's there's very very deep implications to that, and the judgment of God. uh, depicted by his statement and also the darkness itself, uh, is something that we will never have to ever go through if we're in Christ.
1: It seems to be deliberate that uh, in the uh, transfiguration narrative, particularly uh, you have one in Matthew uh, 17, but you also have a uh, um, transfiguration narrative in the Gospel of Mark and also in the Lucan account. But in this particular account- The the Lucan? uh, The Gospel of Luke. Okay. (laughs) Just clarifying that. What you see is you see this deliberate utilization in the Greek of uh, the discussion concerning his exodus. And while this language is uh, uh, indicative of his dying, as it were, yet it is Moses and Elijah who are having this uh, discussion concerning the exiting or the exodus uh, that not only Christ is going to experience, but that he's going to bring about. So that the exodus that is the antitype or the fulfillment of the type, namely uh, the exodus in uh, 1445 BCE, uh, this particular exodus is going to be far more massive and is going to be a fulfillment uh, um, in a greater fashion, in a far greater way. Right. And so this darkness, as you say it, really does become indicative of the judgment of God. And, and uh, another thing that you were saying that I thought was particularly interesting is oft individuals when they are reading the text and he became sin for us, yes. uh, it is not arguing that his nature was turned into a sin nature as right. some uh, teachers have falsely claimed. Rather, he is becoming
0: our sin bearer. That's right. Well, in fact, I brought up the, the idea of, of the scapegoat. Yes. And in the Old Testament, you had actually had two goats because one actually had to die and they would, uh, My if I remember it correctly, is they had to confess sins of the nation, and one goat was, or sheep, whatever, was slaughtered, and the other one was led away, and the idea was they were, it, the, the, the goat was led away to take away the sins, and so Christ does both. He bears the sins, dies for the sins, takes away our sins completely, and God is satisfied with that, which I think was interesting is that God, um, that Jesus always addresses God as Father, Yes, But here he says, my God, my God. Now, obviously, he's quoting from Psalm 22, but it's now it's, it's the cry of the person who it, it, it's almost as if he doesn't have that intimacy with God anymore. It's almost as if that has been broken and or interrupted for a time. And he is, he, he is, um, he's actually truly alone. If you think about it, he has been abandoned by his disciples uh, he has been denied by Peter, he had, obviously Judas uh, betrayed him. His own people, his, the people that he came to, to rescue, uh, the high priest, the Jewish people, they abandoned him, they handed him over. Even his enemies are scoffing at him. So he, here's somebody who's truly alone. And then for God to, in one sense, turn his back on Christ. Now that's there's some very the- theological um, truths to that. to what goes on with God turning his back on Christ for a time but he is truly truly alone mm. he's experiencing something that that no person should ever experience but he does it for us he becomes abandoned he becomes rejected and he is he is um, he's out of fellowship with with his god
1: you know john you mentioned something that is very significant um in in the language in the choice language of jesus christ because uh, as he was very intentional and deliberate in his employment of verbiage throughout his life he is also very intentional in his employment of verbiage here on the cross right and uh, this term uh this usage of loe loe um is an allusion. Back to the Genesis 1 text, Bereshith uh, bara Elohim ve'ith hashamayim v'haaretz. In the beginning, God, right. quote unquote, created a the heavens and the earth. Very pronunciation of your Hebrew. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And albeit there are 31 verses in chapter uh, one. Right. Uh, and that, of course, the the uh, the amount of verses, the numerical uh, uh, presentation of verses is not inspired. But it's very ironic that uh, the term God, Elohim, is mentioned 31 times in the text. And it is employed in order to indicate the raw power of God. Right. But when you get to chapter number two, um, Yehovah Elohim, or Elohim, Yehovah, right. uh, the 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 Lord God, Lord God. Uh, is employed when He is engaging in relationship right. with mankind, right. and so it is very deliberate that Jesus Christ would be speaking of the August raw judgmental power of right. God upon Him at that moment, right. because He is not feeling uh, this intimacy that uh, He has spoken
0: of uh, in Abba before, right? And what's interesting is is Up until this point, Jesus doesn't cry out in pain. Mm. He doesn't, because the scripture says in the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice. What does he cry out? He doesn't cry out, ouch, my back hurts, my head hurts, my feet hurt. He doesn't cry anything out. What gets his attention Mm. and gets him to cry out is this broken fellowship with God. That's that's significant because some people go throughout their entire lives and never miss that. Jesus doesn't want does not look forward to one instant, one moment of being separated from God the Father. That's how much it meant to him. And that's how that's the the whole plan of salvation is for us to now be able to experience that. The fellowship that was broken from back in Genesis three. God goes through the entire redemption history, back from Genesis three up to this point, to reestablish that. Yes. To to make it so that there is no more veil, which we'll get to in the last statement, this is what gets his attention. I'm broke. My fellowship with God has been broken. I don't have the intimacy with the, with the Father right now, and that is what he is most afraid of and most fearful and facing in the Garden, and what he does for us. John, I love that
1: you say that because John, in his Gospel, chapter number one he begins uh, his historical account by saying something that literally goes before the genesis one account he actually says in halagas kai halagas ein prostan this second line theon," right. and the word was with it's literally a preposition that argues for positioning from one object or one person to another person so that it is the word is toward or face to face what you principle. just quoted was in the beginning of was the word, and, and the, the word, word was, was with, w- with God, God. Um, and and so this is the language of the interaction betwixt, frankly, uh, God the Father, God the Son, but included God the Holy Spirit, so that you have
0: triunity. And just to bring up the the point of the, this this facing or this this with God is the word actually can, you can translate as the word was facing God. So there is yes. this picture of a face to face, unbroken relationship
1: yes and there and and with this with this Greek word ain it's the uh, imperfect of the present tense verb, a me, or to be, or to exist. And so the idea is there's this ongoing cyclical pattern that is unbroken wherein the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have never known a lack of intimate fellowship. And in the ancient Near East, when the face was turned toward an individual, it uh, bespoke of uh, the favor, uh, the kindness, Uh, it uh, spoke of the relationalism that exists betwixt them, and so when Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, uh, Lama Shabbatni, right. my God, my God, literally, his idea is, why have you turned your face of
0: kindness, of favor? Go ahead. But yet, at the same time, if he does not experience that, the fact that he does experience that, and here's, you see the picture of God the Father in one sense turning his face or back on Christ, only to turn his face towards us yes. so that that favor that was experienced in a very close way between God the Father and God the Son is now available to us. We're now put in a position to experience what Christ has always experienced. And mm. that is a, that is a, that's a place that no other creature can experience. That's a very, very privileged place to be God the Father invites us, that God Himself invites us to such a place of favor and of grace and, and, uh, and of love and, um, that this has to happen. Without Christ experiencing this, we cannot experience the other. But it's happening,
1: John, is hellish for this reason. Right. Because the absence of the favorable face of God does not argue the absence of the presence of God in wrath. And so what Jesus is experiencing is the absolute wrath of the Father poured out on sin. Right. And and this is something, as you said earlier, that Jesus does not look forward to. He does not anticipate. In fact, he says, Father, if it's your will, let this cup, which is the cup of wrath, right, pass from me. And and Jesus takes full of this cup, thoroughly of this cup, and so drinks this cup that Jesus experiences in the space of six hours what the sinner could not satisfy in eternity. Right? He experienced the full blow, the full throw of what it is to experience a God who has had cosmic treason committed against him. Now, now doesn't this this really speak
0: also to the absolute depths of, of what sin did to us. In other mm-hmm. words, this was our, our position, our separation from God, our, our, um, the effects of sin was, put us in such dire straits that the only answer to that was not sending some angel, not sending a prophet. It was sending God himself, God the Son was the only? This was the only. This is how bad it was. It was such that he had to endure this and become a man. Which, by the way, um, his decision to take on humanity, human flesh, or to um, take on another nature—I guess you can say—he's one person uh, with two natures. Yes. That lasts for eternity. In other words, in heaven, we're going to still see him with his hands that are marked up and his side that's that's that was pierced that this was the only answer. So this was God's perfect plan, and this was the only way. It speaks of God's, the tremendous amount of love that God has for us. If you doubt God's love, and I know a lot of us doubt, I mean, I go through times where we wonder, you know, does God love me? Go back to the cross. Hmm. Look at the events of the cross just everything leading up to that point, leading up to what God did, there's nothing, God exhausted heaven in one sense to pour out his love towards you through Christ dying on the cross. That you, there's nothing more God could have done. And it speaks of his faithfulness and his love and his grace that, that we should be the recipients of that love. And that's our choice, really. People have the choice whether to receive that or reject it. I pray that whoever's listening would receive that because you know, God loves you. You know, John, this has to be said
1: because you bring up a very interesting point. In John 3.16, the text of Scripture, um, and and by the way, parenthetically, might I say, this is not... Um, acceptable in other religious persuasions. Um, uh, In other religious persuasions, it's Michael the Archangel who situates himself as um, the one to die and becomes the son of God. In other religions, um, it is adoptionism so that the spirit comes on him, the Christ comes on Jesus and adopts him and then abandons him at the cross. Only in Christianity proper. Do we see? We don't even see this in ancient Near Eastern Greek or Greco-Romanized thinking, etc uh, In fact, the gods not only would sacrifice for us, uh, they would take advantage of us. Right. They rape, they pillage, they take the women that they want. And what are you to do because you are powerless against the gods? Uh, but what we're looking at here is very interesting to me because in... Um, in uh, uh, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, this little word so doesn't yeah. tell us how much God loved the world. Right. It's the word toss, and we see this same word used in uh, the disciples' skeletal prayer uh, in Matthew 6, for- pray in this way, right. uh, the better translation would be for in this way God loved the world. In right. what way? Uh, that he gave his only begotten son, purpose clause. Uh, to what end did he do this? That. So this was the demonstration of his love. Yes. This is how God demonstrated his love towards us. So that we would not perish. In other words, as you said, uh, if we bypass or skirt the death of Christ, which is an accurate, demonstration of the salvific or of the delivering or of the freeing uh, hand of God, there is no other way whereby men can be saved. That's right. I want to make another comment just on this because I know we have to hurry past this. I think it's so profound that, number one, uh, or rather number two, that uh, uh, in this Jesus is not paying the penalty to Satan. He is paying this penalty uh, a to the father right. against whom we've committed cosmic treason. Right. I think third that it's important to mention in this text that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. Yes. And and here's my here's my statement. It's phenomenal. It's astounding. It's shocking to me that when Jesus is objectively abandoned by the father, he doesn't start to curse God. He doesn't start to cuss God. He doesn't start to neglect his dutiful liturgical
0: responsibilities. Right. In fact, well, I, I didn't want to interrupt your, your, your thought, but in, in that same Psalm 22, the psalmist starts off with this idea of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? And he says, Oh my God, I cried by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find the rest. Yet you are holy mm. and thrown on the praises of Israel. And in your fathers, tr- they are tr- our fathers trusted in you, and they trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued, and in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And he goes on you know, from there, basically, he's going to still keep his trust in God. That's despite, amazing. Despite the fact that he is experiencing this, yet he is still being faithful to that you know maybe there's a there's a limit to how much we, we can take in situations Jesus even the fact that that God turned his face on on him for a short period of time Christ did not give up on his trust in God
1: John in my estimation that's the entire kit and caboodle. that's the ball game you mentioned earlier and I thought it was so profound Jesus never complained i'm having a backache and he did right he never said i'm having a headache and he was he never said I have, I have this and that happening in my body. He didn't, this is what he says. He says during the worst moment in which I can say prophetically and objectively that the Father has forsaken me, I am going to during my worst moment quote the hymn of Yisrael and thereby engage in intimate interaction and worship from my perspective until such time as the favor of God is turned back upon me.
0: Amen. I mean, we better go on to the next, the next statement because oh, we're going to run out of time. Absolutely. But and the, next, uh, the we, next statement would be in, in uh, uh, John 19. As we're going to the next yes. statement in John 19,
1: may I just say an application, and I think you'll want to chime in on this, John, um, I feel so convicted and rebuked when I complain instead mm. of worshiping in what I perceive to be my worst hours. yeah, I am reminded, and I don't want to uh, bash or embarrass him, but my uh, precious father-in-law, one time I saw um, um, his nerve was in uh, – it was being uh, – uh, Squeezed, right, and to the point where it was a debilitating pain, and he could not walk, and he had to uh, be uh, aided in particular ways. And thank God that that has not lasted uh, over time. Although he has had um, a revisitation of that condition at a certain time, but he will never know that he gave his son, he gave his son-in-law one of the most precious gifts that he could have ever given him in his life, namely in moments when he had sharp agonizing attacks of pain, I remember him saying these words, thank you, Lord, Hmm. you're faithful, Lord. I love you, Lord. And I thought this is what the cross of Christ demonstrated. I thought that in that hour, and I continue to think that at this very hour, that I pray to be the kind of worshiper who when I can't see God, who when I can't sense God, who when as Job, I cannot see him to my left, nor to my right, nor before me, nor behind me, when there's no estimation of his presence, he can hear my worship and my praise, fidelitously or faithfully crying out, in the midst of all of this, you are yet holy and you yet remain God. Amen, amen. John
0: 19, but John 19, in verse 28, it says, after this Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a st- sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And I'll, st- I'll stop right there because the next statement will be uh, in verse 30. But Christ, th- for the first time, um, says something about what he's experiencing. He says, "I am thirsty. I I, I thirst, um, despite the fact he's experienced all this. He he says he says I he says I'm I'm thirsty. I, I I'm I don't I, I, and you can imagine that he has not had anything to eat or drink since the night before uh, at the the Last Supper or the Passover meal he had with uh, his disciples. Uh, he's he spent most of the night up going through the the the, the kangaroo court of a of a trial with." Uh, with the high priest and with Pilate and everything else with uh, the scourging. So he hasn't, he's lost blood. He's lost uh, body of fluids. He is out in the open, um, mm-hmm. exposed, um, and the, his, his body is going through um, the effects of all that. And he finally cries out. He says, "I thirst." Now he doesn't say, "Would somebody give me a drink of water?" He just says, "I thirst." And this is a very significant statement, I think, because I think it speaks. Yes, it speaks to his physical, his physical um, state, um, but the fact that he experiences it—of course, he's experiences as a as a human being—and uh, and the thirst that he's experiencing is a true thirst, and. Uh, but there's something where he does not—he does not call the angels down to say, "Can you um, leave this this experience for me?" You no, know, he experiences it all entirely without uh, without the assistance of everything. It's like a, a pregnant mother going through pregnancy and having a baby without the epidural. Mm-hmm. God bless them who do that. He experiences this fully without the assistance of everything, and he experiences what it is to thirst, what it is to to feel alone, what it is to. Um, to be rejected and and, and uh, more evidence of his uh, his grace for us. You
1: know, uh, John, this is interesting because <coughs> what you were saying is summated in uh, a theological term that we refer to uh, or a phrase that we refer to as the hypostatic union. Yes, And uh, it involves uh, uh, two natures in one person so that he is 100% human and 100% uh, divine and the two uh, exist side by side but not intermingled as it were. And so here is the humanity of Christ, and this is not the first time we see this, right. but it is the first time we see uh, this kind of self-crying out uh, for a uh, horizontal need, right. as it were, on the cross. Um, and when he says, I thirst, uh, it's interesting because earlier he was offered uh, this wine slash vinegar. Right. And this wine is something that would have regularly been present at the cross and would have been available not for the people on the cross immediately or first or as a priority, but for the Roman soldiers, and I find this very interesting, to appease their minds right. psychologically for the dark detriment that they were going through in crucifying people. Right. And and so this fermented vinegar slash wine, as it were, is refused by Jesus because whereas the sinners need some kind of inebriating substance that will relieve their thinking, Jesus earlier refuses it and says, and this is crazy to me. I want, in fact, I have to have all of the pain. Right. Jesus does not leave one drop of pain. Available for us to go back and take in the cup of wrath. There's nothing left in that cup.
0: Which, which, which this leads on to a, a practical point. There's, If Christ himself takes on the full wrath of God and drinks the cup fully, so to speak, there's not one ounce of wrath that we have to experience as Christians. In other words, there's not one moment or time or day where I would need to beat myself up for my sin. Though I personally tend to do that, I don't need to. Christ did that for me. God doesn't say, you know, I left a little bit in the cup for you, John, so you can experience a little bit. No, no, no. Christ experienced that fully so that there was never a need for me to, to beat myself up, to put myself down, to sort of think, well, I will be a part of the process of atonement by beating myself uh, up uh, for over my sins. Christ was endured that all, all for me and for, for 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 believers. You know that's what I
1: love, John, about taking communion. If I am honest, hmm. because um, Jesus took my cup so that I could drink His. Amen. And His cup is sweet. It's the cup of blessing. Right. There's no bitterness in that cup. He has completely fanciful theological word propitiated or satisfied the Father to such an extent
0: that there's not one drop left therein. Now, you brought up this idea of satisfaction. Go back to, if you look at the the verse again, this is one thing that really stuck out to me in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished. Yes. Yes in order that Scripture might be fulfilled. The word accomplished and fulfilled are related words, and they're also the same word that's being used in verse 30, where it says, it is finished. Yes. There's this idea of something being completed, this idea of something being fulfilled, not in the sense where Matthew uses the word play ra'o to fulfill Scripture, you know, to fill up the cup. Correct. But it is finished that whatever Christ had started, he had finished. There's a contrast here in this verse. On the one hand, you have this satisfaction... On the other hand, you have this lack. You have the fulfillment, all things have been accomplished. On the one hand, God's will has been fulfilled and satisfied. On the other hand, he's thirsty. Mm. There's There's a huge contrast where there's times when, back in John chapter four, Jesus meets a woman at the well. This woman comes there in the hottest part of the day, she's by herself, she's not wanting to interact with the other ladies. And Jesus has an appointment with her, and he asks her for a drink of water. And what's interesting, uh, the scripture doesn't record that he ever drank the water, but he offers her living water. Well, what she was first coming uh, thirsting physically was a picture of, her, of of her thirst spiritually as well, because she leaves that that encounter with Christ being fulfilled. And how many times where were there's a contrast with people uh today are hungry and thirsty for something and they turn to physical things they turn to relationships they turn to all kinds of things to try to satisfy that that desire that hunger but never ever ever satisfy they still thirst and that you know they they are driven to to you know maybe it's maybe it's voting for a new president that will be our answer no that's not going to be answer. you're still going to be thirsty maybe it's losing weight, maybe it's getting a new job, whatever it is, that never, ever satisfies because you're still thirsty because the the cup you're trying to drink can't satisfy the, the thirst of the soul that only Christ himself can satisfy. Here, Christ is thirsty physically, but spiritually, he's doing the Father's will. He is satisfied with what he's doing. In fact, he says back in that John chapter four, when the disciples wanted to give him something to eat, he says, I, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And basically, you're saying, I am satisfied with doing the Father's will. Here, all things are being satisfied. There's no lack in that sense. What he lacks physically, spiritually, is being made up. It, John, would you,
1: you said something, and, and we were so in sync when you said that. And I, I just want to get you to give it a point of application there and, and park there for a moment. Because here, Jesus, the Son of God, is directly in the heart of the will of the Father. right, He really is, and yet, being directly in the heart of the will of the Father does not abrogate or take away from the reality that we have needs, and Matthew 4, we can be hungry, this particular text, and we can be thirsty, and the Father can allow that, and so there is, at times, a conflict in us. Right. And, and if we were to listen to modern um, uh, uh, leaders, and or people who would lead us to believe that God's way is always a successful way in its experience so that we never go through hunger and we never go through thirst, I'm right. thinking right now of some person who is married yes. and thirsty, someone mm-hmm. who is parenting and thirsty, someone who is pastoring and is thirsty, and they're allowing their thirst to question whether or not they are in the will
0: of the Father. Would you just speak to well, that? Well, I, I think that's a, that's a great question, a great point. And when, as, as, a, as a Christian, there is no promise they will never go through trials and tribulations. I wish, I wish there was a button that we can press that we would never have to do that. But that's not the way it works. First of all, the fact, just to bring up something here, is that the fact that Christ even expresses his statement, I thirst, gives me hope. Mm. Because there's times when I go through thirsty times, and there's times when I go through distressful times, and Christ's example shows me I can still express that to God, and God can still hear that prayer and can understand Hey, I know what it's like, and God and Jesus, as the Son of God, as the one who has experienced it all, would understand. Hey, I know what He's going through. The the time where you where you in your marriage, you feel alone. You're hungry th- for for a deeper walk with not only uh, the Lord, but maybe your husband as well, who's maybe not in the same page with you. You're hungry. God hears that, and first for your to uh, to pour out your heart to God to express that thirst. Something that Christ paves the way for us to do. May I mention just to someone,
1: you may be thirsty now, but you serve and worship the God who satisfies. Mm. He'll go so far beyond what a Roman soldier is able to give you on a spear, through a sponge. And for those individuals who are in the wake of potential compromise, remember that although you are going through this moment, the word of God uh, still applies to you in your direct circumstance.
0: Man shall not live by bread alone. And doesn't Christ say, I did, I interrupted you. No, you're I fine. I apologize, go. you were right in the middle of probably the most profound statement. No, go. <laughs> Christ does say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, why? They will be filled. They will be satisfied. Having the thirst is not a bad thing. Sometimes having a thirst is what really drives you forward. It's having the thirst and going to the right place, going to the right well, so to speak, to be satisfied. And a lot of times we go to the wrong place, we go to the wrong well. Having a thirst is not a bad thing. It's where are you going to fill? Where are you seeking to be satisfied for that thirst? I don't know... um, what your situation may be, but Christ is the one who says, come to me. He says, he who believes in me will never thirst. Christ is that well you're looking for. Not another relationship, not another job, or another project, another like on Facebook, not another selfie, not another whatever. Another house? What that won't satisfy. It may satisfy your desire for things, but then again, things don't satisfy you either. The only thing we are made as 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 creations of God to hunger for God. And the psalmist says that my, my my soul thirsts for you. <laughs> wow. We better move on
1: to the next one, because... Because we
0: better finish this, because oh, Christ man. finished.
1: Well, <laughs> he said it is finished. I may not be able to finish, yeah. so...
0: See, he's he's short on his words. That's why he's the Lord of That's glory, right, he's and I'm the not. Lord.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Paul and I have a problem. Yeah. Uh, John 19. I, I'm going to actually um, um, read from verse 28... Through 30. Um, just because I want to point out something that you mentioned. Uh, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, that's the term te- telestai from the root, uh, telestai. The f- to fulfill, that's also a form of that term telestai. The scripture, said I am thirsty a jar full of sour wine was standing there so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth therefore when jesus had received the sour wine he said tetelestai or it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit
0: oh my goodness this is it i mean think about this this is what christ is saying First of all, the word tetalestai, however you want to pronounce it, it's a word that means something that's brought to completion, something that is is uh, brought to an end, but also is a word to signify a debt that had been paid in yes. full. Now, think about this. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, God had been working um, a plan of salvation, and a plan that he had came up come up with for, if correct my English here, Came up with before even the world was created. All the prophets, prophecies, all the symbolism, all the pictures, the sack everything from the Old Testament were were shadows of the reality that would come, and all the the blood that was that was poured out every day, every year, was would not be able to satisfy God's wrath. Would not be able to pay for that debt. It put it off. Here's the point where God's, the debt we owe to God was completely paid off and there's no more payment to God owed. And what's significant about this word, tetelestai, and...
1: No, please. It is ahead. in,
0: it is what is called the perfect tense. Yes. You say, well, that's great, perfect tense. What does that, what does that mean? That means it's something that happened in the past, from our standpoint, that has effects even to today. In other words, like there's a ripple that's still going on. That even that ripple has, that whatever sin that you and I are going to commit tomorrow or 20 years from now has already been paid for, that we get to enjoy the blessing of having our sins paid for. There's nothing you can add to the equation,
1: John, this is profound. Uh, this, this term, tetelestai, is so profound because it argues that Jesus Christ looked at a, a magnificent
0: debt. We say a magnificent now, debt. We, look, we talk about debt, okay? Our country's in debt, and the Congress keeps putting it off and borrowing more and money. Imagine that you were faced with that debt by yourself at a really, really high interest rate but could not do anything to pay it off. That is what we're talking about for for everyone. I I think the debt theologically is so profound because you are not a
1: sinner because of what you do. You are a sinner because of who you are or what you are. And it is from that, that sin proceeds from you. Whether you are awake or asleep, the truth is we outside of Christ exist opposite of the Father. As a result of that, then, every moment we are at a fence with the Father. So his, de- his debt pain was both for what we are as fallen creatures. It is for what we've done as fallen creatures. It is for what we will ever be able to do as fallen creatures. And then his life goes beyond this because his life... His debt does not simply uh, uh, pay for what we've done, but his life gives us all of his right standing, our righteousness. So, so here's right. just a statement. The statement would be this, in all of its profundity: "You will never be able to outsin what Jesus." has paid for because the payment of Christ is so great that it will go so far beyond your sin that it will take all of eternity for the Father to grant you the blessedness
0: of the payment. That's wonderful. That is, that's, prof- that is, it's, it's, it's profound. It's something that I don't think as Christians and a lot, and I've been a Christian for a lot of years, I'm still learning how to live in that, how yes. to rest in that. Because as oftentimes I struggle with feeling like, am I doing enough? Am, am, I, am I doing enough to pay for the things I did wrong? Well, no, no, no. That's not even part of the equation. The equation now is accept it. The equation, the, 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 the goal now is to rest in that. No, no, no. I, there's something I can do. No, no, no. Rest in it, because there's nothing you could have done
1: so to be, save yourself the grief. To be sure, confess it. Hamallegeo, say
0: right. concerning it right. what God's moral law says. Right, confessing it exactly. But for you to actually atone for what you've done or will have done, that will that will never happen. But the challenge I think for a lot of Christians is the. Um, is to rest is resting in the finished work of christ whereas if beforehand god's wrath was on us god did not look on us with favor in one sense because of sin because of our sin nature of who what we were born into now as being in christ as a christian the opposite is true his favor is on us in a way that sin cannot separate us from from him anymore John, there's certain people listening to us who have come from a,
1: a, a religious background, and my employment of religious background is not to um, demean the phraseology, as many tend to. I think what we mean by a relationship now, um, uh, uh, by definition, many of our forefathers meant that very same thing within the framework of this terminology, but here's what I want to say. For those individuals who would be involved in certain religious persuasions, that would tell them you need to do penance. Uh, mm. uh, you need to be the absolute best. I- I'm not saying be a Christian jerk, but what I am suggesting is the words of a hymn Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But if we are to believe Scripture, if we are to believe the seven last sayings of Christ, if we are be- to believe what the Spirit has said by inspiration, outside of your organization, outside of their theological persuasion, He has washed mm-hmm. it. He has washed you, us, whiter than snow. And so mm-hmm. and so, it's inappropriate for me to flagellate myself, to beat myself, to demean right. myself, to, to try and, and arrogantly... Act or suggest or speak in a way that says I have lifted myself up on the bootstraps of Jesus and my own morality.
0: No, and and oftentimes we, I mean, oftentimes I, and maybe others out there, have a hard time because we look and we know what we've done, we know what our past was like, we know our sinful tendencies and the thoughts we have, and yet God for some reason still loves us. He does not love you and me because of. Something that we did to earn it, he loves it because he loves us because he has chosen that, and he is love. He can't help but love us, and he has demonstrated that love through Christ, and Christ demonstrated his life, his love for us by dying on the cross, rising again, interceding for us before the Father, and and uh, promising us eternity with Him. There's a there's a there's there's a an, there's a place where we have to just rest in that. And that's the, often the challenge. The challenge is to rest in that, to accept that, to embrace it, to celebrate it, to, to realize that it's, it's, it's done. The work has been accomplished.
1: To take up our residence there. Because because the idea is you don't visit this on a Sunday morning. That's right. You don't visit this after a really good week. Um, uh, what you do is you re- you live here positionally in Christ, and then you you think here, you act here practically. And so I just really think it's important for someone to understand that if Jesus says it's finished, how dare me try to pick up a cold case that Jesus has solved? Mm. It's inappropriate, Very nice. uh, it's unbiblical. Uh, next one, my, I wish we had so much time, Luke 23. <laughs> I, I wish we had time, not only because of the uh, textual theological um, stake before us, but because, John, I enjoyed doing this with you so much that it's, it, we could just go ad infinitum. Luke 23, You're pretty 46. swell.
0: You're pretty swell yourself, too.
1: Oh, get out of here. <laughs> we'll go ahead and work with the text, huh? Um, uh, Luke uh, 23, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 46. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last.
0: Wow, can I check on the last last verse we just read uh, in John 19, if I just wanna add, or can add. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So I'm just, that last phrase, along with uh, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. What gets me at this sense is oh, now he's back to father. Now that relationship has been reestablished. And the, the picture that maybe some have of Christ is that, that death overtook him, that somehow he died, a, a weakened, and a man, that that, got, that, uh, that death had over, overpowered him. No, no, Jesus Christ is in full control of everything up to this point. He is not overpowered by death. He decides when he's going to die. He decides and he commits himself to the Father. And the Father takes him. He's putting himself back in trust with the Father. And he says he says, uh, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." Now he's actually quoting from Psalm 31 that says, "Into thy hand I commit my spirit." You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Mm. And there's a statement there that the idea is the psalmist is entirely trusting himself, entrusting himself, committing himself to God. And then he gives up his spirit. He says, God, here I am.
1: You know what's amazing? Jesus is in this awkward situation. The cross is not a uh, high instrument like we oft think of, um, through the depiction of m- movies or uh, or plays or dramas or things of that sort, uh, they wanted the cross to be uh, psychologically torturous. Right, uh, it's only about maybe twelve inches or a bit more off of the ground, which makes each of these
0: statements very easy to hear. Well, you just say you, they, they wanted to make it psychologically torturous. You know, in most of the time, my understanding of of uh, how they did this you were actually meant to last for a couple of days most people would have lasted a few days to one experience the, t- the prolonged um, elongated uh, torture and and uh, pain of it all and they also put uh, you out on the main roads to experience the shame of people passing by so what's interesting is that christ is going to die before they expected him to die um, the only reason why uh, this was a, a Sabbath that uh, was coming and uh, they were preparing for the, the, the holiday, or as you would say, the holy day. Um, and so they decided to break the legs of the other two, uh, uh, the thieves on the cross to, to speed things up. Because when you die on the cross, it was mainly through suffocating um, and being exposed to the elements. So most of the time when you were crucified, it was, it was, it was drawn out. Christ does not allow that. In fact, my understanding is that when Christ when Christ dies, he actually dies at the time when they begin sacrificing the lambs of the Passover. Yes, he dies at the at the time. It was between two nights that they were to sacrifice, and at the start of that is when um, is when he actually gave himself up and became now the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God. They would die. He was in control of that. He decided the timing of all that, and he commits himself back to the Lord, and God the Father is being faithful, rescues him. uh,
1: John, he shows such control here. I mean, as I said, breath was a commodity on the cross for him to cry out in a loud voice. Right. He shows that there's a reserve of strength that that he's uh, been in control of the entire time. What's more, he cries out in this loud voice, Father, into your hands. Uh, this may theologically suggest that hell was unnecessary because hell had been experienced on the cross. Right. I wish we had time to go through that and establish that. But in, in looking at this, the profundity of this text um, is this moment wherein not only has he laid down his life acting as the main control, controlling agent of this entire scene and moment which rome is completely unaware of but the thing that he does is it is at this moment that a little thing that had been mentioned earlier is going to take place namely this day you'll be with me in paradise amen it's very neat that he's able to say i'm controlling the time i'm going to leave and by the way when you leave thief you can come with me to the father
0: which, and it speaks, if, God's, if Christ himself is in control of everything on the cross, all the pain and suffering that he went through, and the timing of his own death, the timing of the events that happened, how much more is he in control of our lives? How much more is he in control of the timing of whatever trial you and I go through? There's nothing that has overtaken God that is stronger in God that he can't control. There's no point where Christ says, I can't handle this. There's no situation that you have ever faced that is overwhelming to God, whereby he gives up his hands and says, that's enough. The fact that he does this and ends in this way is encouraging to me, to you, and to you out there, that God is fully in control, that we can commit ourselves entirely to God, trusting him, with our past With our present And with our future Thank you again For listening to Living Truth With John Cor And C.L. Mitchell If you would like to hear This podcast again Or previous episodes You may do so at PassionforHisWord.com That's PassionforHisWord.com You may also like us On Facebook At Living Truth Radio Broadcast That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast Again Our prayer for you Is that God Would sanctify you In truth For His word is truth.